Great, thanks, Courtney. How about we bow our heads and ask for God's help to understand this passage. Heavenly Father, uh, you hold the whole world in your hands. Uh, We're like a speck of dust, Uh, but yet you know us, you love us, and you want us to know you. You want us to know your love and that we're known by you. And so, Father God, we help help us to, to know who you are, to know your grace, and to know the way to you, to know that um, uh, uh, you've opened a way that shows your extraordinary grace. Help us to grasp that now and the implications for our everyday lives. Amen. Well, why on earth should we bother with the church? Can't we just be a Christian without the church? Uh, I'm sure we've all had thoughts like that run through our heads. Uh, A father once uh, was showing his daughter around a church building uh, when he pointed to a war memorial. Uh, Those, he said, those are the names of the people who died in the services, the father explained. The daughter replied, which services were they? The morning service or the evening? (laughs) Well, I hope it wasn't resonate. Uh, For some, church is dull, boring, exhausting. Uh, So why on earth should we bother with the church? Uh, We live in a time when uh, there are more uh, alternatives, a huge number of alternatives uh, to church on a Sunday than ever. Uh, Readily available, very attractive, sport, sleeping, sleeping. Shopping, friends, family, fun hobbies. Uh, So why on earth should we bother with the church? Can't you just have Christ without all the Christians? Uh, What are we to think when someone says, well, I follow Jesus, but I don't do church. I, I, I don't need it. I'm fine all on my own. Well, our culture influences us more than we realise. One of the main features of Western culture uh, today is individualism. Ever since uh, René Descartes in the 17th century argued, I think, therefore I am, our culture, famous philosopher, our culture has answered life's questions starting with I. And so uh, nowadays the individual is the centre of the universe. In the Western world, everything is defined in relation to me. Now, uh, our Asian and African and South American friends here uh, in the room don't think like this. In fact, we're probably a bit strange to them. But we Westerners have never known anything different. And so we just think that individualism is normal. But the great danger is that we end up approaching the Christian life with this same mindset, with a philosophy, a secular philosophy. We think in terms of uh, an, individual, an individualistic gospel, uh, that Jesus died for my sins so that I can go to heaven. And you can tell when people will put their faith in an individualistic gospel. They'll emphasise God's amazing grace to me to themselves but they ask well do I have to evangelise others 
Do I have to go to church? After all, we can podcast the world's greatest preachers. We can download the uh, latest worship music. And we can pray wherever we are to God Almighty, creator of the universe. So why bother getting out of bed? Why And hauling yourself down the road where neither the teaching nor the music will be as good. If I may say so myself, yeah. Uh, the teaching, I take that back, not the music. The music's good. Does Christianity have to come with the Christians? Can't we just have Jesus? Well, by osmosis, the world shapes how we think and live, whether we realise it or not. But as Christians, we need God to shape how we think and live. And so we need to let what God says in the Bible shape how we think and live on every issue, including the church. You see, when most people think of church, the church, they think of old and cold uh, buildings with stained glass windows and candles. But the Bible's definition of church is completely different. The church isn't about the building. It's about people. It's about relationships. And so we need God through his word to teach us what the church is. Who owns it? It's not, not me, not, pa- not no pastors. And also who belongs to the church? Then we might say to ourselves, well, why on earth would I not bother with the church? Now, our big question tonight focuses on the latter. Who belongs to the church? Now, we find our answer in Galatians chapter 3. There were lots of big and tricky religious words in there. Uh, I'll try and make it a bit simpler. Uh, you see, the, throughout the whole Bible, God's plan has always been to make a people for himself. And that's crucial. God's purpose is not simply to have persons, individuals relating to him individually, but that he would gather a people together to be his. You see, right from the start, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God made uh, a people for himself, Adam and Eve. It only took till chapter 3 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, before all that was ruined. But God didn't let sin those who rejected him and rebelled against him, Adam and Eve. He didn't let their sin stop his plan to make a people for himself. And in fact, the whole story of the Bible is about God saving and gathering a people for himself. And we see that in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, God promises Abraham, the most significant, important person in the whole Old Testament. He promises to make him the father of a great nation. In other words, God's going to form a new people, a new people of God again. God's going to promise him to save and gather. And this promise drives from Genesis 12, right at the start of the Bible, drives right through to the very last two chapters of the Bible. God's work in drawing people to himself has always involved also drawing people to one another. Now, Who belongs to the people of God was one of the key issues troubling the church in Galatia that this uh, chapter came from. The problem was that false teachers had 
come into the church and they were preaching a false gospel, a different gospel, which was misleading the people. And these false teachers were saying that to belong to God's people, to be a child of Abraham, one of the great nation that God had promised him, that Christians needed to keep the Jewish law, all the Old Testament laws, the circumcision laws, the food laws, and the festivals. Now, in response, the Apostle Paul outlines four arguments about who belongs to the people of God, which brings us to our first point. In the first point, we see the first argument, an argument from personal experience. And he basically says, well, your conversion shows that we belong to the people of God by faith, not by works, not by doing anything. Now, the Galatian, the Christians in, Galatia, in the church in Galatia seem to have forgotten this, the most, most basic thing about how they became a Christian, like they'd been bewitched, like a, a, a spell had been cast over them. Read with me, verse 1. Uh, the Apostle Paul says to them, You foolish Galatians, who cast a spell on you? It's like they'd thrown their brains out. And so the Apostle Paul reminds them of their conversion to Christ. Firstly, he reminds them of the gospel they'd heard, of the good news about Jesus they'd heard. That uh, when he'd come and he'd planted their church, the message of good news that, they, that he preached to them wasn't that they had to do more rules and rituals. Keep reading, verse 1. He says, who cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? You see, the message Paul preached to them, the message of Christianity, is the good news about Christ and his cross. It's good news. The, the, the message of a murder is apparently good news. Now, it's the gospel, this good news, which defines the church. Not the church who defines the gospel message. In the 16th century, 500 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church said that history and hierarchy define the true church. And so if you stepped into their institution, you stepped into salvation. But if you stepped out of their institution, then you stepped out of salvation, out of relationship with God. Some still say that nowadays. The reformers 500 years ago said, well, no, the gospel defines the church, who the church is. And the mark of a true church is that it preaches the true gospel, the true good news about Jesus, that he died on a cross to put us back into relationship with God. The apostle Paul's gospel was the good news of salvation through Christ and his death on the cross. Now, the gospel doesn't just define what the church is or who the church is, but also who is saved and belongs to the church. The answer is uh, those who hear and believe the good news. Have a look at verse 2. Read with me. Verse 2 says, Paul writes, sorry, Paul writes, I only want to, to learn this from you. Did you receive God's Holy Spirit by the works of the law, from the Old Testament, or by believing what you heard? That is his message about Jesus. Notice how the Holy Spirit enters 
the life of us Christians through our ears. To receive the Spirit is a sign that you've truly received Christ. The gift of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit are distinguishable but inseparable. The Word of God and the Spirit of God always go together. But Paul's point is that the Galatians' own personal experience, their conversion, demonstrates that they began their Christian lives not by doing good things, by obeying rules and rituals, or obeying the Jewish law, but simply by hearing the message of Jesus, like you're doing right now, and believing it. And now the Galatians must continue as they began. Hearing and believing the gospel is the key to Christianity from beginning to end. That's an important message for us to hear today too. I've heard people say that they began their Christian lives by believing the gospel, but now they've moved on. Now they've moved on to something more sophisticated, something more mature, something truly spiritual. Some try to find God through mystical experiences, perhaps through some sort of emotional response in corporate worship, or through prayers or, or tears, making us acceptable to God somehow. Others go a, a different extreme, uh, and it's a trap we can all fall into. We move on to by adding works. We think our church attendance or our daily Bible reading, or our moral performance makes us right with God somehow. We've all got a different conversion story. For some of us it was dramatic. For some, gradual. But common to them all is faith in Christ. Hearing and believing the gospel. It's as simple as that. Which brings us to our next point. In the second point, we see the second argument. An argument this time from scripture. Uh, Paul quotes the Old Testament. That the children of Abraham belonged by faith, not works. You see, the false teachers in Galatia preached that the Gentiles, that's all the non-Jewish people in the world like you and I, that we needed to be, for example, circumcised for a male. Like Jewish people, if we wanted to belong to the, the people of God. After all, they said, well, the children of Abraham, it's the children of Abraham who are the people of God. And the Old Testament commands that males be circumcised, for example. Now, in response, the Apostle Paul says that, sure, Abraham does define who God's people are. That promise I was talking to uh, that, about earlier, that God would make Abraham a great nation, a new people of God. God Abraham does define God, who God's people are. But that we should look more carefully at what Scripture says who Abraham's children actually are. You see, for Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, their hero, he himself was justified right with God through faith, by believing, by trusting. Read with me verse 6. Verse 6, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was right with God by simply trusting that promise. And now Abraham is the example, the model for everyone who wants to be right with God and belong to his people. Keep reading verse 7. It says, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. 
Now, the Apostle Paul anticipates an objection at this point from these Jewish false teachers in the church at Galatia, who might say, well, the false teachers would say, well, for hundreds of years, God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament, were defined by the Old Testament law. And now you, Paul, want to overthrow centuries of history with this new innovation, this new message about a new way to get right, be friends with God again, a new way to God. But Paul says that salvation by faith is not a new invention, not a new innovation that he's made up, but actually it was God's plan right from the beginning, right from the beginning of the Bible, from the time that he promised Abraham to make him into a great people, a great nation. To, that he, from the time that he promised to take people from all nations to be his children. It wasn't by becoming Jewish or keeping the Old Testament law, but simply by faith. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. Now the scriptures saw, verse 8, Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. See, that was the gospel in seed form back in chapter, Genesis chapter 12 of the Bible when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, verse, verse 8 and 9, consequently those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. You see, faith alone was always the means, the way by which people were saved and became a, belonged to God's people, not works. Now, faith is uh, widely misunderstood these days. Uh, you probably heard people say, well, I wish I had your faith. Or, I don't have faith, but I admire people who do. You see, these people missed the point. Faith isn't some uh, virtue that you muster up inside yourself. Faith isn't a thing that you have or keep or lose. Faith is a relational bond. It's trusting in someone else or something else. And it's the something else or the someone else that actually matters. Uh, before you hop on an aeroplane, you need to have faith that the pilot knows how to fly the thing. You've got to have faith. You've got to trust him or her. There's no point putting your faith in the tooth fairy. The tooth fairy can't make an aeroplane fly. It's not the faith that's important, it's the pilot that's important. So what do Christians put their faith in? What's the object of our faith? Well, we trust that Jesus can make the aeroplane fly, metaphorically speaking. We trust that Jesus can save us from God's judgment for our sin, for our wrongs, and gather us to belong as one of his people. Read with me verse 13. Sentence 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, that is from God's judgment, by becoming a curse for us when he died on the cross. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. In other words, we trust Jesus died on the cross to remove the curse of God's judgment. Now, when God saves, he also gathers Keep reading verse 14. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Jesus Christ so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. So now by trusting in Jesus, simply trusting in Jesus, by putting our faith in him, we belong to God's people. 
There's no wrongs more to be punished. He's taken it away. He's removed it. Which brings us to our third point. Uh, in the third point, we see the third argument, an argument this time from history. God's salvation plan was always that people would belong by faith, not works. You see, the false teachers in Galatia promise salvation requires our works. But the Apostle Paul responds to them, you're missing the whole point of all those laws in the Old Testament. And then he anticipates the obvious question that these false teachers would ask next. That, well, what is the point of all those Old Testament laws then? Read with me, verse 9, 19, sorry, verse 19. Paul asks, well, why then was the law, the Old Testament law, given? It was added for the sake of transgressions. You see, the function of those Old Testament laws was to reveal our sin. To reveal our wrongdoing. Not to prove that we're perfect. God's people in the Old Testament wouldn't have known what, we wouldn't know what wrong and right is without the law. They wouldn't have known they were sinners. The second function of the law was to reveal our, therefore, our need for a saviour. Let me read this time from um, the NIV Bible. I think the language is just a bit simpler and clearer. Verse 23, uh, the NIV Bible puts it like this. It says, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So that Old Testament law, it's almost like a jail. And we're stuck in a jail because of our wrongdoing. And we, need, we don't want to stay in jail. We need someone to let us go free. We need a saviour. And that saviour is Jesus. So verse 24 continues. Verse 24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified right with God by faith. The goal of the Old Testament law was for us sinners to put our faith in Jesus as our saviour. But now that the saviour has come, well, we don't need to live under that law anymore, that Old Testament law. Read with me verse 25. It says, but since that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. In other words, the Old Testament law, all those rules and rituals, they were just like a temporary guardian, like a babysitter for us. Uh, when our parents, uh, when we were little and our parents used to go out on date night, they'd, when we were kids, they used to hire a babysitter, didn't they? Uh, and the job of the babysitter was to stop us destroying ourselves and our home. But their time was only limited. They were there to do a temporary job uh, until our parents returned. Then their role was complete. Well, for the Christian, we don't need the law to babysit us anymore because our Father has returned home. Our Heavenly Father has come home. And he, we can now know him. And he now rules us himself through his gospel word, which he writes not on tablets of stone anymore, like in the Old Testament, but on our hearts by his Holy Spirit. And that's the whole point of Galatians chapter 5 in a couple of chapters. The fruit of the Spirit. We don't live by laws now. We live by gospel wisdom. We don't need to say, we don't... Uh, we don't say no to sin and yes to obedience because an Old Testament law tells us, but because Jesus' death on the cross tells us. The Spirit helps us to understand that. And so the babysitter's time is up 
Our Father has now come home and he wants us to live cross-shaped lives. Which brings us to our final point. God's children belong by faith, not by works. He's making that same point over and over and over again. He's just coming from a different angle, isn't he? Read with me, verse 26. It says, for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. You see, now through faith we're God's children and God is our father. We don't just belong to God's people like we're, we belong to God's family. Our justification makes our adoption possible. The famous Anglican theologian J.I. Packer says, justification is the first and foundational blessing of salvation, but adoption is the ultimate crowning blessing. So we were like orphans before, like an orphan. She's poor, disgraced and homeless. But she doesn't just become a part of the state in an orphanage. No, one day she meets and marries a prince. Martin Luther puts it this way, faith unites us with Christ in the same way that a bride is united to her husband. And as a result, everything they have, they have now in common. So we glory in whatever Christ has as though it were ours. Unquote. Now we as God's children, just as much. Now we're God's children, just as much as Jesus was. And everything that was his is also ours. And so justification by faith not only applies to us as individuals, but it starts to change the way that we view other people too. Read with me, verse 28. Now there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since all are one in Christ Jesus. You see, in God's family, in the church, gender, race, social class no longer ultimately define us. It's not that these identities still disappear. I'm still a male. I'm still middle class, I think. I'm still Gentile. But they're no longer our primary identity. What defines us is our identity in Christ. And now we're all God's children. And so racism and sexism and prejudice and superiority and exclusion have no place. I wonder how, uh, I wonder does our church welcome everyone and anyone who comes in? I wonder if there are any types of people who feel excluded or second class among us. Are there people outside our doors in the local community who aren't in here but should be? We need to aim to be as broad as possible. And part of what we need to do in a, in a unique congregation like ours is to prepare, uh, with lots of young people, is to prepare us all. We're not going to stay here forever. We need to be prepared to go and be members of broader churches, multicultural churches, multilingual churches, multi-age churches in the future. For everyone who belongs to Christ belongs to the people of God. God's God's family.
Read with me verse 29, the last verse. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. God's children belong by faith, not by works. So our big question was, well, who belongs to the people of God? The answer, Christians belong as the family of God by faith. Simply by faith, by trusting, by believing in Christ, not by works. Now, if we're saved by faith and not by works, then why bother with the church? Well, it's true, and if you're uh, uh, visiting here today, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. It does not save you. It does not make you right with God. Any more than me walking into a Buddhist temple makes me a Buddhist. Belonging to a church is not at the root of our salvation. But it's definitely a part of the fruit. If you don't belong to a local church, then one has to wonder, well, do you even believe? Belief leads to belonging. But at the same time, you can't come to Christ without coming to his people. You see, our relationship to Jesus shapes our relationships to one another as well. If we're all one in Christ, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, if we're all united to Christ, then we're also united to one another, who, to everyone else who's also related to Christ, united to Christ. If we belong to Christ, then we belong to others. And now in the, it's in the local church that this oneness is to be expressed and worked out. And if God is our Father, then we ought to treat his people and then his people are our family. And we're to treat our family as our father wants to. You see, the church isn't merely a, a meeting to attend, but a family to belong to. And what you do to your church family is what you do to Jesus. Jesus says himself in Matthew chapter 25, he says, Truly, I tell you, that whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus isn't speaking about serving people generally, but about his brothers and sisters, his people, the church. We serve Jesus as we serve Jesus' brothers and sisters in the church. Now the reverse is also true. Neglecting the church is neglecting Jesus. Now, there are some times that it's just for unavoidable reasons that we're unable to come to church for a while. Uh, perhaps we're elderly and we're physically frail. We've just had an operation on our hip. Sometimes mental health issues makes being in crowds especially difficult for some people. There might be special family circumstances or emergencies. Perhaps even, as I mentioned earlier, the coronavirus pandemic will impact us for a while and we cannot meet. You might have a sore throat, stay home. But these must be exceptions, not the rule. Perhaps some of us here uh, need to think about why we don't attend. Imagine for a moment a family gathering, perhaps a birthday or a Christmas, where one sibling is missing, not because they're sick, but simply because they couldn't be bothered. They weren't in the mood. 
The child who divorces themselves from the, their family misses out on love, on life. Or the, think about the church as a body. Imagine a leg that's amputated from the body. Not because it was damaged beyond repair from a car accident, because, but simply because it decided it didn't want to be a part of the rest of the body anymore. It's ultimately a fatal decision. The limb will grow cold without life-giving blood pumping into it. And not only does this person threaten their own life, but it also makes it harder for the rest of the whole body as well. You see, the whole body without its leg was confined to a wheelchair. It's not the way it's designed to be. So it is with God's people, the church. Gathering with God's family isn't an optional extra it's part and parcel of what God's called us to, to be a part of his family. Now, the attempt to have Jesus without the church is not a new problem. In fact, the problem was there right in New Testament times. Hebrews chapter 10, I think it's up on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how we might spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see that day approaching. You see, one of the reasons church is vital is it's God's way of encouraging us and others in our faith. Without church, we're saying, well, we don't need the encouragement that God thinks we need. But not only is this an arrogant attitude, it's a selfish attitude, because we're also saying that I'm not interested in encouraging others in their faith. I'm not encouraged. But the urgency of mutual encouragement is spelled out in these final words of this verse from, uh, from Hebrews. It said, encourage each other, and all the more as you see that day approaching. Now, what's that day? Well, the point is that there's a day that's more important than Christmas or a birthday to get ready for. It's the day when Jesus returns to judge the world and save his gathered people. Does your life revolve around living for that day? Does your attitude to church revolve around living for that day? Or do you only live for eternity and love others when you're put on a roster? The church is God's family. The Christians are your brothers and sisters. There's no more important family gathering in the world. There's no more important family business in the world. Why on earth would we not bother with church?